So have you ever made a promise that you failed to keep? <laughs> That's the appropriate response right there. Of course. Right? Perhaps it was a promise that you would, after this point, you would never do a certain thing again. I promise I'll never do that again. And then a day later, you do it again. A month later, you do it again. Given enough time, you fail to keep that promise. Or maybe it was a promise to meet this deadline. I'll have it in at this time. And when the time came, you were unable to keep your word. I think every person in this room, young and old, would say, yes, I failed to keep a promise. From parents to children to spouses to friends to family, co-workers, we've all extended promises. And yet we often find ourselves facing the difficult reality that we're unable to keep and to fulfill our word. Why is it so difficult for us to keep promises? And I'm not talking about those times when we make promises with our words, but we know in our hearts and in our minds we have no intention of keeping those promises. That's a different sermon for another day. That's a different problem altogether. I'm talking about the promises that we genuinely make and we have every intention of keeping them. And I think sometimes we're unable to keep our promises because circumstances outside of our control make it impossible for us to keep our word. So we extend this promise, we have every intention of fulfilling it, then things happen. Life happens and we find ourselves out of control, unable to do that which we've promised. Or sometimes we simply change our mind about the promises we've made. We, we make a promise, but then given enough time, we decide that a different course of action is actually the better decision than the promised one. Sometimes we make promises without counting the costs. Maybe too hastily, maybe too rashly. We, 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 in, in our excitement, we make a promise and we haven't really considered what it's going to cost us, what it's going to take to actually fulfill and keep that promise. And when the time comes to make good on that promise, we realize it's not worth the cost. Sometimes we make promises and we just simply forget. It falls out of sight and out of mind. And these are just a few of the reasons that we often fail to keep our promises, to make good on our word. And because promise keeping and breaking promises is such a common occurrence in our life, I think there's a dangerous problem for us. I think sometimes we take that human everyday experience of breaking promises and having promises broken to us and we think that God is like that as well. Because we're so used to breaking promises and because we're so used to having promises broken in our lives, we assume that maybe God is just like us when it comes to keeping his word. Now, no one goes out and says that. I've never heard any of you say, you know what? I don't think God keeps his promises. And that's because we're super smart. We know that's not the right theological answer, right? We know that, that in theory, God is a promise-keeping God. And so we've got good theology. We know that God keeps his word. But in practice, in the everyday experience of our lives, I think maybe in the back of our minds, there's this thought. There's this wondering that maybe, just like us, there are circumstances outside of God's control like God really wants to keep his promises. He really wants to keep his word, but 
There's circumstances just outside of his control. And so maybe he just can't keep it. Or maybe God has made promises, but in the course of time when he's seen who we are and what we've done, God is going, well, I've decided there's a different course of action. There's a better plan than the one I had before. Or maybe God has made promises hastily, rashly, made his promises without considering the costs. Or maybe it's none of those things. Maybe God is just so busy being God that he's simply just forgotten about some of his promises. Friends, I want to assure you today, there are no circumstances outside of God's control. He does not change his mind. He never acts without counting the cost. And friends, God never forgets. One of the resounding promises of God throughout the Bible is this, that God is faithful to keep his word. Look at Joshua 23 verse 14. We'll have the words on the screen. And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. This is Joshua. He's leading Israel. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word of God has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Hebrews 10, 23. The writer encouraged us to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. He's faithful. Today we're looking at Genesis chapter 35 and a little bit into 36 as we wrap up part two of our series in Genesis. We're looking at the beginnings and we've seen in a part one about how God has created all things. He's the maker and sustainer of heaven and earth. We also saw tragically how sin entered in and has broken God's good creation. And then in chapter 12, now up and through Genesis 35 and 36, where we're going to get to today, we've seen how God has chosen a family to bring about the redemption of the world. In the last few weeks, we've been looking at the life of Jacob. And we've seen how his life has been characterized by distress from the day of his birth until now. Sometimes Jacob is to blame for his difficult situations, meaning he's made some boneheaded decisions and he's suffering the consequences of our actions. Sometimes we've seen in Jacob's life that he's the victim of, uh, of, of evil and plotting and planning against him. And yet through it all, there has been a constant thread in Jacob's life that God has been faithful to keep his promises to Jacob. Not one word of God has failed. See, Jacob recognizes that God has kept him in his word, but more than just mere recognition, we're starting to see Jacob live in light of God's promises. And as we walk through this chapter this morning, we're going to see three things. We're going to learn three things that I think Jacob learned that I think is going to be helpful if we could learn these lessons as well. First, because God keeps his promises, you should give him your highest allegiance. Because God is a faithful, covenant, promise-keeping God, you should give him your highest allegiance. That's going to be our first lesson today. Second, because God keeps his promises, 
you can actually build your life around them. Because God keeps his promises, because not one word of them will ever fail, you can build your life around them. It is a firm foundation for you to build your life. And number three, because God keeps his promises, you can keep going no matter the difficulty. No matter what you're facing, you can keep going because God keeps his promises. Those are the three lessons Jacob learned. I think there'll be three lessons that if we can learn... Our lives will have the kind of direction that we want. So first, let's look at verse 1 to see that because God keeps his promises, you should give him your highest allegiance. Remember again, verse 1, here again, the word of the Lord. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Now we should stop here and just bask in the grace and mercy of God to come to Jacob Again, think about what happened last chapter. Think about how dark that chapter was. Think of the pain that was caused because of Jacob's failure as a husband and a father and a leader. It's one of those chapters in the Bible where God's name isn't mentioned at all because it's so incredibly dark. And yet, because God is a God of mercy and grace, he's looked at the mess that they've made and he said, I'm not done with you. We would expect, if we were writing this, if we were planning out chapter 35, we'd go, God comes again to Jacob and says, look at the mess you've made. Now I gotta clean this up. I'm starting over with another family. That's what we would expect, given how horrible of a leader Jacob has been. But that's not how it reads. He comes to Jacob and says, I'm not giving up on you. I've made promises to you. I'm faithful to my promises even when you are not. I think about 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. I think this is a fitting verse for him. Paul writes, if we are faithless, he, meaning God, remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. I think we need to hear that again. If we are faithless, guess what? He remains faithful. So if you're doubting, how could God be faithful to me? Let this, verse, let this verse sink in. He's saying God cannot deny himself. God has made and extended promises that he intends to keep and he cannot deny himself. And so your faithlessness, your failures do not negate the promises of God because he is faithful. You remember at Bethel all those years ago, God had promised Jacob to give him the gift of his presence. He said, I will be with you. The security of his protection. He says, I will keep you, Jacob, and the abundance of his provision. He promised him land and seed, the multiplication of his progeny, that they would have livestock. He'd be well taken care of. God says, I promise to give you my presence, my protection, and my provision. Notice there wasn't this caveat in there, if you will do such and such. He just said, Jacob, this I promise you. And God is faithful. He cannot deny himself. And what have we seen? Chapter after chapter of Jacob's failures and and floundering that God has remained steadfast and faithful despite his failures, despite his faithlessness. And so God comes to Jacob and says, 
Let's go back to Bethel. And then he reminds them. Do you remember when we first met there? Do you remember you were fleeing from your brother Esau? Now why does God bring this up? Why is God bringing up the past? See, God is reminding Jacob of this time in his life when everything seemed hopeless. You remember when Jacob was leaving his home? He's on the run. Esau is ready to kill him and he's a skilled hunter, which basically makes him like a trained assassin. And he's coming after Jacob and he leaves with nothing and you remember when, he, when, he, when he's out in the wilderness, he has to use a stone for a pillow, which means he didn't even have a pillow. He didn't have an extra tunic. He had nothing. He was with no one, with nothing, in the middle of nowhere. And God came to him when everything seemed hopeless and extended these beautiful, abundant promises to him. And he's having him remember. You remember when all seemed hopeless and I was there for you? No matter how hopeless it seems right now, all the hopelessness of chapter 34, he's saying, Jacob, remember, I keep my promises so you can trust me. Verse 2, so Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves. Change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So Jacob responds to God's call to go to Bethel. And before he packs up and leaves, he kind of has a family meeting. He brings everyone in and he says, listen, we need to get rid of all the idols in our homes. If you remember a few weeks back, it was Rachel who had stolen the household gods of her father. And we also learned that in addition to, other, uh, to those household gods, other members of, uh, uh, of, of Jacob's extended family and his household have adopted those foreign gods. You remember they've, they've brought in other people. Jacob's kind of um, clan has grown and it's likely they've brought in other household gods and foreign gods as well. And it's clear from the text, Jacob knows about these things, right? Because he's telling him we need to get rid of them. So if you're going to get rid of something, you know that it's there. But he's never taken any action against them. Jacob knows that fidelity to God, faithfulness to God, means you can't have rival gods. And yet Jacob has allowed these things to go, um, unno- to, to go uh, compromise. He's, he's been okay with it. He's allowed his home to become compromised. And that it's, it's not that they've completely given up on Yahweh, the one true God. It's that they've created a pantheon of gods. He's saying, listen, we're going to worship God and these other gods. They've adopted other gods into their religious practice. Here's the big problem with that. God does not share his throne with anyone else. He doesn't share his throne with idols. And Jacob knows that. And he knows that if he's going to be serious about walking with God, if he's going to be serious about this next leg of his journey, he needs to do so with singular devotion. So he calls everyone together and says, we need to get rid of these foreign gods. What we have here is a really good demonstration, a picture of that biblical concept called repentance. Maybe you've heard that term before, repentance. Here's what it means. It means to turn away from something, to turn towards something else. And so what Jacob is doing is he's saying in order for us to turn to the Lord with a singular devotion, we need to turn away from these false idols. We need to turn away from these rival 
gods. We've got to put away the foreign gods and turn towards the Lord. So that begs the question, why is Jacob doing this? Why now? Why is Jacob leading his family and his household to put away these foreign gods and purify himself? And I think the reason is, is that Jacob is ready to worship God, not just in theory, but in practice. He's ready to start getting serious about his work and his his relationship with the Lord. And so he takes what he knows to be true, that God has reached out to him in the day of his distress. He knows that God has been with him all this time. And he reflects on the fact that despite his utter faithlessness, God has been faithful. God has been true to his word. And he's seeing that not just in theory, but in practice. And that truth is starting to work its way from his mind down into his heart. And now he's ready to respond with his hands in practice. See, Jacob's entire life has been one of distress. It's been constant from him. I mean, even in the womb, you remember when uh, Rebecca was pregnant with Jacob and Esau? She's having all these, these pains and she's going, what is going on? And, 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 and she goes to Isaac saying, you need to go to the Lord and figure out what is going on. And the Lord responds to Isaac and he says, there are two nations in your womb. And the Hebrew reads, they literally are smashing themselves together inside the womb. Even in utero, his life has been one of distress. Then when they're born, you have Isaac's favoritism of Esau. You have Rebekah's favoritism of him. And you know how that destroys and brings dysfunction into the family. Jacob and Esau are at odds their entire life. That competition brought about a, a broken family that resulted in Esau wanting to kill him. Jacob having to flee. Then he meets his uncle Laban. And his uncle is a terrible person. He cheats him, tricks him into marrying his other daughter when he wanted to marry Rachel. He extorts him for 20 years, wringing him out to the bone. Then chapter 34, all that happened to his daughter, Dinah, the revenge that took place with the mass killings, and now they need to be on the run. His entire life has been marked by distress. And what does he say? But God has been with me wherever I have gone. He realizes no matter what he goes through or what he's done, God is faithful to keep his word. And that is driving him to respond to God's mercy and grace by giving God his highest allegiance. So verse four, they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the turban tree that was near Shechem. So here's what happens. Everyone comes forth with their foreign gods and their idols, even the little rings that are in these idols' ears. Now this is significant because they, 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 they bury it all. They, 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 they put it all under the tree, even the little gold earrings. Now why is that important? Well, the gold itself would have been valuable, but they're saying we're going to get rid of all of it. Not just the, the, the idols, but even the gold that is associated with them. And it's also showing we're not going to take that gold later on and melt that down and make other idols. The point is this. They gave all of it up. Not just some of it. They gave all of it up. And they buried them under the terebinth tree near Shechem. It's basically they're having a funeral for these idols. There's a significant and subtle, poignant reminder that if you can bury your God and it stays in the ground, it's a dead and powerless God. 
Now, friends, our idolatry has evolved over the years. We don't have little trinkets that we bow down to. We probably don't have little corners in our houses set up with small little um, uh, idol worship. We don't have statues with gold earrings. But our idolatry is no less flagrant and no less real. Because God keeps his promises, we should give him our highest allegiance. So anything in your life, anything that rivals your singular devotion to the one true God is an idol. It doesn't have to be a trinket that you bow down to. But if there's anything in your life that rivals God's place in your life, anything that steals away your highest allegiance, your greatest affection, and your utmost attention, it needs to be buried and put away. And since our idols can easily hide and evade us, I have some diagnostic questions to help us identify them. These 11 questions come from David Pallas, and he's kind of like a, um, an idol of the heart Jedi master. He's very good at, figure, at finding them. So here's some questions. Now listen, if you want to write these down in your notebooks, feel free to do so. We've also got, um, we've printed them up in the back at the resource table. So don't feel free to write them and jot them all down. You can take one of those sheets with you. It'll be like a little worksheet, homework you can do later on in this week. So here's the first question. This is trying to help us identify idols. What do you worry about most? What if I failed or lost it would cause me to feel that I did not even want to live? What do I use to comfort myself when things go bad or get difficult? What do I do to cope? What are my release valves? What do I do to feel better? What preoccupies me? What do you daydream about? What makes me feel the most self-worth? Of what am I the most proud? What do I want to be known for? What do I lead with in conversations? Early on, what do I want to make sure that people know about me? What prayer, if unanswered, would make me seriously think about turning away from God? What do I really want and expect out of life? What would really make me happy and what is my hope for the future now in and of themselves you could have some different answers to these questions that doesn't necessarily mean it's an idol but what it's getting at is trying to uh, get to the core of who you are into your heart just like a good doctor right when you go to the doctor you've got something going on you've got these symptoms that are presenting a doctor's going to ask you a slew of questions to identify the root cause of those symptoms And maybe one symptom, you know, like a runny nose, that doesn't necessarily mean you have COVID or the flu or bronchitis or whatever, right? That's just one symptom. But it takes a list of several symptoms to go, okay, based on these symptoms, here's the root cause. Here's the infection that you have. That's what these questions are meant to do. It's meant to surface some of these idols of the heart that rival our allegiance to God so that we can expose them that we can put them away, that we can bury them. And I really do. I hope today you would take one of those sheets at the back that has these questions and you'd spend some time this week working through that guide. And between 
that guy, those good questions and the power of the Spirit, I believe he will help uh, reveal those idols of the heart so they can be exposed and brought to light so that they can become uh, put away, that you can bury them. See, because God keeps his promises, we should give him our highest allegiance. There should be no other gods. There should be no rival allegiances. That's the first lesson. Now let's look at this next section to see that because God keeps his promises, we can build our life around them. Verse 5, as they journeyed, the terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. If you remember last chapter, Jake, the, the chapter ends because Jacob's terrified that the surrounding inhabitants of the land are going to find out about um, uh, Simeon and Levi's mass killings of the people of Shechem and come to seek revenge. And in one sense, he's right to fear retaliation. This was the law of the land in those days. If you were to do something like they did, there would be retaliation. You could expect revenge killings. But at the same time, Jacob has the promise of God's protection. So there should be something that in Jacob's mind to go, listen, I know that they may come after us, but the Lord has promised to protect us. And Moses here gives us insight into why no one sought revenge killings against them because a terror from God fell upon the cities around them. And what's interesting is Jacob doesn't know that. God didn't come to Jacob and say, hey, listen, don't worry about it. I've sent a terror, whatever that means, right? To put people in their place, no one's going to come. He doesn't know that. But what Jacob has to do is this. He has to leave and go to Bethel. He's got to pack everything up, leave Shechem, head out to Bethel, passing by the surrounding towns by faith, knowing that God is going to protect him. He doesn't know. He doesn't have that little narratival insight that we have where Moses tells us, hey, God has gone before him. God has protected him. He doesn't know that. He has to walk by faith and trust in the promises of God. If you remember in our last section, he's given up these foreign gods. He's decided to go all in and he's walking by faith, trusting in the promises of God. It's this little glimpse that he's putting his faith into practice, building his life around God's promises. You see that? He, he really believes God is going to protect me. And so we can walk by these surrounding nations, trusting that God is going to be faithful to his word. Verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again. When he came from Badanaram and blessed him. And God said, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. So Jacob makes it back to Bethel. And God appears to him again. This time not in a dream, but in some kind of more conscious awareness of him. He, he appears to him and he blesses him. And he reaffirms, Jacob, remember when I renamed you Israel? That's still your new name. I've not given up on you. You are now Israel. And not only that, but he reaffirms his promises to him. He says to him, I am God Almighty. 
Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come for you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give you the land to your offspring after you. God reminds Jacob, think about it. He's, he's been on this journey. He gets back to this place, this really important place. And he reaffirms that he's not done with them. He says, you're still Israel. I still have a plan for you. And he also reaffirms all the promises that he's given him. You think about where he's at in his life. What a balm that would have been to him to, to hear those promises to, again. And he says, Jacob, I am God Almighty. Don't forget that. Don't forget I am God Almighty. I am all-powerful. I am all-knowing. I am all-loving. I am God Almighty. You can build your life on me. You can build your life on my word. And he tells him, be fruitful and multiply. He tells him, listen, a, 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 a nation is going to come for you. A company of nations are come for you. A king even is going to come from you. And your descendants after you will inherit this land. Think about it. God is telling him, this land you're on right now is promised to you and your descendants. In other words, he's saying, set up here. Dig deep roots here. Grow your families here. And trust me, in this land that is right now not your land, this land will one day be your land. And you might be thinking, why would that be fruitful, multiply, and fill this land right here? Why would that require faith? Think about it. The land they're in right now does not belong to them. And as they continue to grow and multiply, who do you think is going to start to take notice? The Canaanites, the inhabitants of this land. When you, when you rule a land and a few people come by, you go, no big deal. Look at them. They're small in number. But as they grow, as they multiply, they're going to start to, to notice that. And they're going to start to go, well, listen, are they going to want to displace us from this land? Right? See, we here be fruitful and multiply simply as like grow and raise a family, but it's much more than that. God is telling them, establish God's kingdom right here in the land of Canaan on earth as it is in heaven. And the rival kingdoms around them will not like giving up their ground. And so God is saying, Jacob, trust me, believe in me. And if you really believe that I am God Almighty, then build your life around my word. See, God has promised Jacob to be with him and to be for him and to protect him. He's promised to give this land to his inhabitants. And now Jacob has a choice to make. Will he believe those promises and build his life on them? Or will he reject them and do his own thing? And by God's grace and by his promises, they enable Jacob to believe and to fulfill the command to be fruitful and multiply. Now in verse 13, we learn that God went up from him in that place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. And so Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him Bethel, which means house of God. So Jacob responds to God's promises by setting up this pillar and pouring out a drink offering. In other words, Jacob is demonstrating with his response, Lord, I will trust you. I will build my life on your promises. And he sets up this pillar of stone. It's something permanent to remind him of God's call in his life. It's something to remind him of the promises of God. And if you think about it, there's nothing new here for Jacob. 
God's already renamed him Israel. He's already made these, these promises to him. So what's happening? Why is God kind of creating this deja vu moment? God is reminding Jacob of his promises because we're so prone to forget. We're so prone to, for, to forget. You know, that's one of the most common commands in the Bible. Remember, don't forget. Happens over 240 times in the Old Testament. We, just like Jacob, need to revisit God's promises so that we can remember all that God has done, all that he is doing, and all that he's promised to do for us. Just think about some of the promises God has given us. Do you remember that God promises to forgive your sins? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think we forget that so many times, that God promises to forgive our sins. Do you remember that God promises to never forsake you? Psalm 94, 14, for the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. How many times do we wonder, have you forsaken me? Have you left me? And yet God has promised never to leave us, never to forsake us. Do you know that God has promised to hear your prayers? 1 John 5, this is the confidence we have towards him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked for him. Family, God promises to hear your prayers. Do you remember that God promises to meet all your needs? Matthew 6, 31, therefore do not be anxious about anything, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Friends, don't don't forget that God has promised to meet your needs. Do you know that God promises to work all things out for your good? How often do we forget that? Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things... There's nothing you're going through right now that does not fit in the all things category. God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Do you remember that God promises to finish what he started? Roman, Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God's not done with you. He's not going to leave you as an unfinished project. Friends, these are just some of the promises. That he promises to forgive our sins, to never forsake us, to hear our prayers, to meet all of our needs, to work all things for our good, to finish what he started. And we could keep going on and on and on into the week, rehearsing and remembering the promises of God because he's not stingy in extending his promises to us. Rather, he is abundant and generous in his promises. So Seven Mile. If this isn't a compelling foundation to build your life on, then tell me, what else will you build your life on? What else? What is more compelling than these promises? Tell me, what better promises do you have to build your life on? Because if you've got better promises, I'd like to know. If If you've got an inside scoop on something better, don't hold it to yourself. Let me know. I want to build my life on that too. The reality is, 
There is nothing better. There is no more sure and steady foundation to build your life on. Because God keeps his promises, we can and we should build our life on them. Now let's quickly look at the last section to see that because God keeps his promises, we can keep going no matter the difficulty. Then they journeyed from Bethel when they were still some distance from Ephrath. And Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. And so Rachel died. And she was buried on the way up to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. The Bible, one thing I love about the Bible is it never makes the claim that if you'll just trust in God's promises, if you'll just build your life on them, then nothing bad will ever happen to you. Never promises that. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Example after example shows that hardships, suffering, difficulty often accompany the life of faith. And the sooner we can believe that and expect that, the better. We don't believe in God to avoid difficulty. That would be a selfish ulterior motive. We believe in God simply because he is our greatest good. He is the truest truth. And he's the only one worthy of our highest affection. See, just because Jacob had turned away from idol worship, just because he had turned to the Lord, just because Jacob was making an honest go at living his life with faithfulness to the Lord, just because he was back on the path of obedience does not mean Jacob was exempt from the pains and sorrows of life. And this verse details one of the hardest days for Jacob, the death of his beloved bride, Rachel. You remember what he said of her? after he worked seven years for her hand in marriage, he says it seemed like but a day to him. That's how much he loved Rachel. You can imagine how hard this day was to say goodbye. And a day that was supposed to be a joyous day, the day as they welcomed in another son, became a day mixed with joy and sorrow, bitterness, as he had to bury his beloved Rachel. Just before Rachel dies, she names that new son Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow, son of my affliction. And through the pain, Jacob renamed his son Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Now this is subtle, but I think it's an important shift here. Jacob's decision to rename Benjamin from Ben-Oni shows his trust in God's promises and it shows that it enables him to keep going no matter the difficulty. Think about it. Instead of attaching the sorrow and pain of Rachel's death to her son, instead of that being the thing he's known for, the son of Rachel's death, he gives him the name of significance and power, the son of my right hand. It's a common thing when a woman dies in childbirth for the father to even um, disdain that child to associate that pain and sorrow and loss and tragedy with that son. And he says, I'm not going to do that. He's going to be a son of significance and a son of promise, the son of my right hand. And Jacob, in a very practical way, is saying, God, it hurts. 
and the pain is real. But because of your promises, I can keep going on. It's hard to imagine a pain more tragic than the death of a spouse. And yet, even that does not nullify the promises of God. Because God keeps his promises, we can endure no matter the, the, the difficulty. But the difficult circumstances don't end there. Look at verse 22. When Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now, just remember Reuben. He's Jacob's first son with Leah. He's the oldest of all the children. And if you remember, Bilhah is Rachel's servant. So here we lay that Reuben, Leah's son, lay with Bilhah, Rachel's servant. And Israel, who's Jacob, heard of it. Now this is something right out of the Jerry Springer playbook, you know? What's going on here? Well, first I think we see the long-term and far-reaching effects of Jacob's sin. The consequences of favoring Rachel, of always disdaining Leah have come back to bite him. Jacob had long favored uh, Rachel and had ignored Leah. He had ignored her children as well. And so Reuben, has, he's sort of taking matters into his own hands. See, by sleeping with Bilhah, he made it impossible for Jacob to choose Bilhah over Leah for priority among his wives. See, after Jacob's, uh, Rachel's death, there would have been this vacancy for you know, wife number one. And Jacob could have chosen to continue to disdain Leah and elevate Bilhah into Rachel's place. He could have chosen Bilhah. But instead, now that Reuben has slept with her, he's made, it, he's made that decision impossible. So it effectively made it such that Leah would now become wife number one. Now let me remind you, the Bible does not uh, condone or elevate or champion polygamy. In fact, every single instance where you see it in the Bible, it's a disaster. It's always cast in this incredibly unfavorable light. This is not God's plan and purpose for marriage and family. And this is yet another disgraceful difficulty that Jacob must endure. Bring shame upon his family, more difficulty, and yet he continues to put his trust in God beyond what his eyes can see. You don't see Jacob now going, okay, now my children are sleeping with my with my wives, this is just out of control, and you see him abandon the faith. That's not what happens. We go on in verse 27. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. And now the days of Isaac, remember that's Jacob's father, were 180 years. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Now skip to uh, chapter 36, verse 6. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, all his livestock and all his beasts and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went away, he went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. And so Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. So we're kind of getting a summary of the rest of this section of Jacob's life. We see that Jacob's reunited with his father Isaac after all these years apart. Think about that reunion. 
We don't, we're not told a lot about it, but the last time he saw his father Isaac, he was leaving with father wounds and all kinds of um, heartache and difficulty. Now he's reunited with his father, which means he's going to have to face the difficulty of that relationship. I know there's a lot of us in this room where just seeing a family member, a mother, a father, just having to, to be in their presence would bring about some difficulty. His mother, Rebecca, has died. He never got to see her again after he left all those years ago. We're told that eventually Isaac dies at the ripe age of 180 years old and Jacob and Esau are there to bury his father. Chapter 36 details the genealogy of Esau's life and this one important detail that even though Jacob and Esau were reunited, eventually Esau left. Esau wanted nothing to do with the promises and blessings of God. And sure, he kind of gave the excuse like, hey, listen, our, our cattle and our property is getting so big we can't uh, be together, which is really an excuse. Esau despised the birthright. He despised the blessings and promises of God. And he goes off to do his own thing. What's the point of this summary section? It's simply this. The end of Jacob's life, he faced ordinary days. He faced difficult days. There were days of joy. There were days of sorrow. But as best as we can tell from Genesis, we, his faith had finally matured to the point where his faith in God's promises sustained him no matter the day, be it good or difficulty. You see, Jacob had finally come to learn the lesson that no matter the difficulty, we can keep going. We can press on. We can continue to believe in his promises. See, friends, God's faithfulness to us does not ebb and flow based on our performance. That is really good news. He is faithful and steadfast because that's who he is. God keeps his promises. And because of that, we can give him our highest allegiance. And you can build your life on the foundation of his promises. And no matter the difficulty, no matter the ordinariness of the day, no matter the difficulty of the day, you can keep on going. And here's the beauty of it all. The Bible tells us in Jude 24 that the, one of the reasons that God is worthy of our praise is that he's the one who keeps us to the end. This is that verse that our closing song is based off of. We sing it every week. Why? Because I want us to leave every single week praising God, if nothing else for this one thing, that he's the one who keeps us to the end. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen.